0: Welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and Mainly History. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. Language is a vehicle for communication, but each one of the roughly seven thousand spoken in the world today convey unique ideas and understandings that can only be articulated in that community of speakers. Almost half of world languages are endangered. And every 40 days, one goes extinct. Indigenous languages in Australia and the Americas have been especially hard hit. I've had the pleasure of speaking with plenty of experts on this show, but today's guest is truly part of a select company. Carol Dana, language master of the Penobscot, is one of a small number of speakers of that language has played a major role in both its preservation and its revitalization among her community as a teacher, storyteller, and a writer. But Carol Dana wasn't raised speaking Penobscot as her first language, and her journey to learn it is part of this story and of Maine history. That journey also brought Dana into the orbit of Frank Siebert, a gifted and controversial linguist who compiled much of the comprehensive written dictionary of Penobscot available today. I mention his full name here because at certain early points in our discussion Dana refers to him simply as Frank. It's rude to interrupt and in any case Siebert doesn't feature prominently until much later on in the conversation. This is Carol Dana's story, not his. So let's do this. My guest today is Carol Dana, language master for the Penobscot. She's a language teacher and a poet. Uh, she's published When No One Is Looking and Return to Spirit. She also has contributed stories that you can find on dawnlandvoices.org. Carol Dana has recently been collaborating on Still They Remember Me, an edited and translated collection of Penobscot Transformer tales that will be out this June. Carol, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you. You are the language master for the Penobscot, but first you had to learn the language yourself. Could you please tell us a bit about why so few Penobscot people your age grew up speaking the language at home?
1: Okay, well, when you put it in that context, maybe I'll back off from all the history. Uh, It's history, you know, when uh, some genocide, the Phipps Proclamation of 1758, had bounties on our people's head. And uh, I think linguicide uh, along with that has happened. We found out, we had done a play in Sabayat from Theater of the Oppressed, but we called it Theater of the Living. And what came out of that was elders had stopped teaching the language to their children out of love because they didn't want them to have a hard time like they did. And they mentioned uh, getting punished for speaking their language. It's on uh, tape, Ben Levine did. And Raymond Paul, who lived on the island told me in 1980s because Barry and I were trying to get language in the school. He said, you and him are trying to turn back a trend that started 60 years ago, so that had to have been around 1920. He said, when bigwigs in the tribe went door to door and told the people, "We have to talk English now. Never mind making your baskets. We have to work in town." And Frank also told me that around that time, the turn of the century, our people had to move down to Indian Island because the state was restricting their hunting and fishing. And that's how they were making it out there. Uh, Lincoln Island was populated. Uh, people had lived on Orson. There's 146 islands in the river. Uh, Joseph R. Reneau was born on Sugar Island and people had lived at Hemlock Island. I don't know who was at the time, but that was uh, the assimilation that was happening and elders have told me that they got wrapped on the knuckles for speaking the language in school. I mm. think for the same reason the Passamaquoddies went through is what our people went through because my grandparents spoke the language, my grandfather did, my grandmother, but my mother and father didn't. My father's father used to try to teach the language you know, from his home and uh then he'd tell them, oh, you kids go on out and play. Uh, they didn't, you know, it, it was never uh, sustainable or ongoing but there were people at the time who spoke the language and in the 80s up here, we had 25 speakers. They were all past Maquoddy because a lot of them had married in. So I heard that, you know, from my grandmother, I heard her speak it, but that's where it stopped and I know it's due to the efforts of the school. Oh, also Carlisle, an elder here told me that 15 or more of our uh, children went to Carlisle where the uh, saying was kill the Indian, save the man. Right. And yeah, one woman from here found her way back from Carlisle, her and a Mohawk man. And uh, that I found that story amazing but uh, that
0: it's interesting you say that uh, Mm -hmm. because we're looking at it's about a hundred and yeah we're looking at like the hundred and fiftieth anniversary of that saying was uh, was the motto of the the Indian policy so-called of President Ulysses S. Grant uh, and uh, 150 years ago this year was when the, the U.S. government stopped having treaties with Native American nations and started just treating them like Wards of the government and part of this whole civilization process, so called nationwide. And yeah, kill the Indian, save the man was the yeah. motto in the 19th century. And I find it
1: yeah.
0: sad and surprising that that motto kept going, you know, in Carlisle all the way so late into the, the 20th century.
1: So, you know, because of population decrease, because of the state's laws. Because we played into it. All those are factors, I think. And I was going to say linguicide, but our language isn't dead. You know, it's still viable, and due to the efforts of uh, Frank, who came in the 1930s and uh, recorded a lot of the uh, people at that time in the speech. And that's what we have. And we have some tapes, but I think that's why. So few of us speak it because the church and the school's influence, you know, they kind of turned us against ourselves. And, uh,
0: right. When and how did you make the decision to learn the language?
1: Well, when I was 15, there were some fellows around Passamaquoddy's and, uh, they always spoke their language and laughed and there would be Maliseets too that visit and, um, uh, we want to know what they were saying. And they used to make fun of us because we didn't speak our language. So I went to my grandmother and my great aunt and I tried to learn from them. And I made a mistake right off and they laughed at me, but uh, I still remember today what they said. And then I would visit other elders and I would ask them how they acquired the language. And they said, by doing just what you're doing, You know, they went and they talked to their elders. And in fact, uh, uh, you know, there were riddle men, I guess, in. Uh, I've heard of this at Maliseet, and he, he gave me this saying, and it was Nizuwak uh, Chigwalsakaboldawak Gawak. Bezgo Dabidahas Chiwapiktaho. Then Gasawak Chigwalsakaboldawak Gawak. So two frogs are sitting on a log, and one thought of jumping in, and they're asking you how many frogs are sitting on the log but you're using the plural forms. And it was still two because he only thought about it. Hmm. And I I never forgot that because that's me. I have been thinking about this a long time and I need to just speak it, you know, and I don't know if it's because we've lived this compartmentalized life. Uh, I know in the eighties, uh, Madeline told me uh don't forget to take your cup. And I understood her, but it took me a month to be able to say that back to her. And, you know, what can say it now. And then I got in these jobs where you had to do this and that. And it wasn't quite to my philosophy or what I had learned, how we had to do things and, uh, dolly app told me you just tell the child well so you not going to Egypt in and they go in the other room and get their shoes so that's acquired language i guess but we have to uh do learned language hmm. and i think working with frank let's see in 82 i saw that his writing system was true to the language and uh I put it together, I think, from what I heard, which was mostly Passamaquoddy sounds, but the same sounds. And then Mudlin came uh, in the 80s too, and we had been getting consultation fees in our program from, uh, I think it was Maine Humanities, and he was compiling the dictionary. So she was a great help to him, you know, with his stories and everything.
0: You learned from uh, Passamaquoddy at Peter Dana Point and then Mohawk at... I'm to, thank you. Sasne And so what what ideas did you get from, from your time with these people?
1: I don't know if I got ideas so much as the feeling and the exposure to what a living language is. Like I'd be walking up the road. I was thinking of this today. Marjorie was out calling to... Alex, and it was a windy day and she was, Alex, not cheapen, and the wind was just blowing her words, you know, <laughs> but you mm. could hear her and she was calling him to come and eat. That's what that meant. And back then there was just a circle of homes there, but every house you went into, they spoke their language. So to me, it was like immersion. You know, in college, I learned about Stephen Krashen and TPR. And uh, Krashen said it's input, input, input. And he had a lot of theories about how babies acquire language by meeting their needs. So I try to set up lessons. When I did have a chance to teach, it would be a lesson where they would show me they knew what I said. And they could do that. The children could do that. And uh, that's what I... Try to apply because I always thought, you know, where Penobscot's our mother language, but it's a uh, second language now that second language learning methodology might help us. So I just applied it and uh, I made DVDs in the language and uh, I've recorded Transforming Tales, I've recorded the dictionary.
0: Do you approach the Penobscot language with a different perspective? As the elders you grew up with, who, in terms of how you see the language or, or how you speak it?
1: When you had asked that, I thought they had acquired language. And that's mm. like Dolly telling the baby, Najiptun, Muksanak, Washu. And the baby does it. That's acquired language. And ours now is learned mm. language. Okay. And it's a little bit different. And I think that would be the difference because your relative, or say your grandmother, your mother, or whoever is gonna be talking to you in a context, this context embedded language, which is helpful because, well, I have a theory about, we, our body is our mind. So if we can do and act on something, I know you called it kinetic uh, teaching, that, that stays with you more, which is the basis I think of TPR you know, total physical response where uh, somebody tells you something and you do it. And I think that uh, is more effective. I saw these two interact. We had, we were doing something somewhere and Jay's, he told the other boy, now put that parallel to this, you know, and I thought that was so interesting. You know, if you being spoken to while you're doing something, you apply your knowledge right there. It's going to be more meaningful because it's context embedded. And it makes sense. And the whole objective of language is to communicate, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I wasn't ready to speak in the 80s. And then I graduated 1990. And in 96, I was teaching Penobscot. And uh, it was hard. I had all of them from early childhood to eight, grade eight. Uh, I didn't have them all together, but I had to run from classroom to classroom. I worked at the cassette factory, so all weekend I'd be ruminating about what we're gonna do when I go in on Tuesday, but I'd always come up with something, and uh, Mm -hmm. I like being creative. I uh, translated a lot of songs in Penobscot. You know, it's easier sometimes to sing it than it is to say it. And that helps.
0: So speaking of understanding, linguists classify Penobscot as part of the Algonquin language family, along yeah. with like a bunch of other ones, especially Passamaquoddy, Mi'kmaq, others. How easy is it for you and, say, a, a Passamaquoddy or Wampanoag speaker to understand each other?
1: I understand them somewhat. It could be because I lived there. And uh, Deanna and I tried one day (laughs) to talk to each other, and it was like an impasse, you know. But Mm. uh, now let see, too, I can understand them a little bit. And uh, it's because I've been studying Penobscot, so Mm. they're similar. And with the Cree, I had a book once, and I could get maybe one or two words off the page. There's such a thing as Proto-Algonquin, which is the... The root word that those words come from and that's how I learned Penobscot I think was by the roots because it was later that I tuned into the prefix and suffix and the prefix will tell you who's doing the action and the suffix will tell you how many's involved you know that was how I got it
0: you said to me earlier language belongs in our life Uh, And thinking about language as a vessel for culture, what are some ways that in your mind that relationships are expressed differently in Penobscot than in, say, English or French?
1: Yeah, right. And I can only speak to Penobscot. I took a little bit of French, but I'm not sure about that. Everything is my, yours, or his. In Penobscot, so we are in relation to that, and then the words are. Somebody said little poet pictures. Um, they like bisquassuasic is a flower, right? But you're saying that which bursts forth, and the window is bisundasic is what we call a window, but you're saying that which lets the light shine through. Hmm. So. We call people grandmother, grandfather, or Duz is like my daughter. Uh, My relative is, I think that is so important because that's how we survived. Uh, Our groups were family groupings like clans in certain areas, right? So those were really important ties to have. And it was relationship. And in our story, sometimes there's animals, like there's the bear mother story, a young boy that gets lost and the bears take him in. And uh, Wabinolke is about uh, being this man encounters in the woods and uh, come to find out she's a deer, her and her child. He doesn't listen to her when she tells him to do something or not And uh, somewhere I read those stories were to show how important they were. So we look at the animals like there's. We can say gdalna bemnawak, right? That means all our relations. And when we say that, we don't mean just the blood relations, you know, the clan people. We're talking about all of creation because without them, we know we we are nothing. We uh, acknowledge that and we see ourselves in that circle of life you know we're not above it we're not below it we're not i had stewards you know we don't that's a biblical thing and we're not stewards we don't we're not in a position to manage uh this or that you know but i know what they mean we we take care of it i think we have you know we're part of the whole we're in that circle also, you have to read these things and think about them. There's certain families that you might call somebody does as an endearment and also to show your respect. And uh, Guskab does that in the stories when he goes to see the winter, he calls him grandfather. So that's how we uh, view our relationships.
0: You like to take a, an active approach to teaching. The language. Could you give an example of, of the kinds of something that you would have your students do?
1: Oh, yeah. This was a really fun exercise. I had pasted pictures of food on paper plates and would sit on the floor in a circle. And I'd teach maybe four names of the food. And then I'd put them out and I'd say, Millie, like it could be Millie, Did you dazzle? give me potatoes. So the pass it to me and then i might say mila pidge dazzle you know to somebody like give it to them and then wequnea uh, maybe take it so then after they've learned all of them then we can put them all on the floor and go through those with the verbs so they've learned the nouns and the verbs and then they show you they know what you're saying Hmm. We had the same thing in uh, immersion where you made cards of like a man, a woman, could be a dog or a car, and uh, would say boner uh, tasagui panem maybe uh, Sanabe. So you put the woman over the man, like on top of, and then you might say guali would say like next to, place it next to, hmm. and so you're teaching those concepts. Okay.
0: So you are involved in a language revitalization program on Indian Island. When and how did this program originate?
1: You know, at first I was going to say in the 80s, but I think it's been going on all this time. Frank was part of it because he recorded the words in the 1930s. He spoke to different people, he recorded stories, and then Eunice Bowman Nelson knew and of his work and hired him to work for the tribe and Mudlin and I worked with him and then you know he had classes going and she did and then I did and I'm so uh I think I'm afraid of being wrong and I've just been going through uh too much uh stuff I've just gotta get it out there I don't know I'll talk to somebody if I know them I like them and I trust them (laughs) (laughs) well it's part of being vulnerable because uh, some Indians are rough with you you know they'll make fun of you or they'll make a joke out of what you said or they'll make some remark and uh, I don't know if that's internalized oppression or what but it doesn't make it easy you know so I'm reluctant sometimes to speak uh, to a lot of people
0: Hmm. Frank Siebert, you've mentioned him now a couple different times, and, mm-hmm. uh, and I didn't want to, to derail the conversation or, or interrupt you, uh, but could you talk a little bit more about who he was and what he did?
1: Yeah, he uh, came around here as a college student around the 1930s and started recording language with people. Uh, Some of the ones I mentioned, the Stanislaus up Lincoln Island, Frank Stephen and Sylvia Stanislaus, Louis, Lola, Andrew Dana, and he was writing the language down and he had gathered stories. And uh, like I said, Eunice Bowman Nelson was aware of his work and hired him to work for the tribe. He was compiling the dictionary. And that's how uh, I came in the picture. Mm. And uh, Paul Francis Jr. was working for him. And he said, "Uh, I'm thinking of getting done with my job, Carol, do you want to work there? And I did, but I had, I didn't get the job. And uh, finally, I did. So, like I said, he held Uh, classes and then mudlin and me but he was a german fellow from pennsylvania Uh, his dad was from the black forest region of germany and he uh had extensive knowledge and i liked talking to him because he would tell me you know what people thought or what they were doing who was he talking about lived up river and they had certain kind of roses you know just Things about our people and the ones he saw. And then he'd have little stories in his notebooks and, uh, you know, about our people. And uh, I would read them whenever I could. Yeah, you'd say he was an armchair linguist, you know, that isn't what he uh, got his degree in, but he did uh, quite a job. And that's a basis of our dictionary and uh, some of our stories. So interesting
0: non-Native scholars, linguists, anthropologists, and archaeologists, and and others, they've had sometimes good, sometimes really, really bad relationships with different Indigenous communities. And so I'm wondering then, Frank Siebert, was he by and large welcomed as a positive presence in the community? Or what was his relationship uh, between Frank and the, the community at large?
1: Well... It wasn't always good. (laughs) In fact, when I first seen him, I uh, was giving him heck because one of the elders said that he was talking to Susie and uh, he told her that she couldn't talk to anybody else. And he was a different kind of guy, uh, not very well kept, you know, when he's personal hygiene. And uh, I guess you'd call him eccentric, but also brilliant, you know, when... uh, well, I don't know. He got all his information from us. So uh, there was a point of contention and then he would correct elders sometime. And one of our elders had to tell him off. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So she did, you know, and uh, I don't know. It's hard for us. Well, okay. He devised our alphabet, right? I don't mm-hmm. know who we consulted with when he did that. And I had read somewhere and of course, I took that if you have somebody like that, uh, you know, that devises uh, alphabet without community input, then it'll be resisted, which is what our people did over certain letters in there, like the alpha and the schwa and the cha, but we have those because they aren't the sounds that we have in English, but people instead of investigating would just be critical of that and reject it. you know, why, why is our story got alpha and got all these funny letters? You know So some people never get beyond that. But I kind of did for some reason. and uh, well, I quit the job after three years and I went to college because I wanted to teach the language. But uh, he, was, he was controversial at times. He brought okay. it on himself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Marge Brusack has a book that came out just a couple of years ago about the indigenous folks who worked with non-native anthropologists in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you have you had a chance to, to read it at all?
1: Yes, I think I did read that. Brusack
0: yeah. is writing about how, of course, a lot of these anthropologists were relying heavily on indigenous people and you know taking credit oh, yeah. for their work.
1: Yeah. Well, that happens all the time. That's history, you know?
0: Yeah, as you well know, but maybe the audience doesn't. Non-Native anthropologists and other scholars have a really mixed record with with Indigenous communities, and that's Uh, putting it charitably. Um, Okay,
1: what motivated me, because at the time I knew this is our language, and mm -hmm. I think he would say it's his, you know, because it's his work and this and that, and that's why... I would sit there and read those notebooks, because that's our stuff. He got that from our people. And I always told myself, if I can get it in my heart, and in my mind, I've got it, and nobody can take it away from me. And that's what I did. I was on a mission. And uh, I knew how he was. And I knew how he was about other people. You know, He was racist and sexist. But for some reason, he loved the Indians, and, you know, he was here, he was sent here, and uh, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so I I did what I could, and I got, took what I could, you know, for us, I did it for us, and it wasn't always easy, you know, I'll admit that, but if he made me mad, I would let him know, (laughs) and I have,
0: you know. More recently, you've been collaborating with Margot Lukens and Connor Quinn to yeah. translate Penobscot Transformer Tales. Yeah. Uh, could you talk a bit about what those Transformer Tales are?
1: Well, this story's told by Newell Lyons. Transformer Tales are about our cultural hero, Goskabe, and his grandmother, Woodchuck. And he was somebody we grew up hearing about. And uh, it's how he brought balance to the landscape, to the culture, uh, his adventures with various beings and how he uh, transformed them and made suitable living conditions for us. And in that, we learned the value of not hoarding things and considering others, considering uh, generations to come. So it's a little bit about conservation. And uh, grandmother is a respected uh, person as elders are in our culture. And uh, I could say more to that because as grandmother's powers, the grandmothers had say over all domestic affairs, usually in the family. And they were quite powerful, as uh, his grandmother was. And she would tell him what was needed or what was wrong when he'd come back from an adventure. And he'd always go and try to uh, adjust that. But mostly he's about balance, you know, like uh, Agla Bemu. He had to bring him to balance in uh, Grasshopper.
0: Did Gluskabe assume a single kind of physical form or could he change his his physical appearance and size?
1: We don't know because we don't know what he looked like. Um, okay. Yeah.
0: I was wondering, because there are some other culture hero uh, types in other Great Lakes uh, indigenous belief systems who have like a, a single form or, or multiples. And so I wasn't no, sure.
1: No, and... Uh, our artists refuse to draw them too. Uh, my neighbor there, the one whose relative told these stories, thinks that Gusgabe is uh, creativity. Hmm. And he's also called the man from nothing. Right. But okay. uh, also has been said to be a liar. And I don't know if the Christians did that because. Uh, Maliseet say his name was It means a good man. And they think that they lost that syllable in there, in the pronunciation. Oh. Yeah, Galuuskabe. Also, Galu, K-E-L-O, means a speaker. Galuuskabe.
0: I could see where Jesuits and missionary types would interpret Because part of the Gluskabe stories, it's very much him being smart and clever and tricky even. And so, you know, there's the whole genre in Africa, they have trickster tales. And so you can see that in in other belief systems as well. And so I also, I just love the term culture hero. Yeah. Um, it just, it just sounds <laughs> great. You know, when I'm talking about this in my classes, it's like, well, Gluskabe and those and other similar figures, he's not a god, but he's definitely a powerful being. Yeah. Um, it's another, it's a great thing about language, right? Where at least there's not like a, a really like single word, at least in the English language that conveys that sort of physical and spiritual status. Yeah. Do you know, is there a Penobscot word or phrase for to describe somebody like Gluskabe, like a culture hero? Besides, you know, his name?
1: Hmm. I don't know, maybe Medallin, somebody with uh, powers, you know. Um, hmm. We don't talk about it much. You don't hear much about it. It's something we never like to talk about. Okay. But, uh, I'm not really sure. I think all those things have power, great power. And we do too, but we don't realize it because Mm -hmm. that's why I'm so determined to uh, look into our language and our stories because they talk about that Ginhandui is great power. And uh, there's stories where one man says, I think it's a black dog that had been transformed by a sorceress and he's around either stealing people, I think so. And uh, one man says, my son has great supernatural power and the dog doesn't get him. And he calls on his grandfather, Mazatawe. He's a great one of light. He says, open the door for me. And so he does. And then that all went away. And the kids really react to that story too because he's heavily on his... uh, Heels chasing him and almost getting him. And, uh, you know, that great one of light. Uh, I don't know how, how it uh, all goes away, but uh, the footnote in there is something about believing the planets cross the sky in steps. There's so much in it, you know, uh, mm-hmm. to learn and uh, is very empowering, I find. And it's what it's ours, you know, all yeah. of that is ours.
0: You mentioned this spiritual power, and forgive my ignorance, I know that the, I should remember this, but I know that the the, the word for the concept among uh, Algonquin speakers like the Wampanoag uh, mm-hmm. in southern New England is Manitou. In, oh, in we Pen- heard that. Okay, in Penobscot, it's also Manitou? Mandu, yeah.
1: Manitou.
0: Okay, okay. Right, to express uh, that concept that you were, you were getting at, the idea of different beings having this spiritual power okay
1: well i know i was in the smithsonian one time a long time ago and there was a big copper like a rock and i think might have been the ojibwe believe that to have mundu and be mundu and i think some of our people think that's bad but i know it isn't you have to decolonize sometimes too reading these things because they've yeah. been changed and uh their talk like good and evil well our people never had that there's just the power we don't judge it and we don't say it's good or bad like even you know for our body parts but somehow our language has that in the air. And I think that comes from outside. Hmm.
0: So these transformer tales that are forthcoming, what role do you hope that, besides as just stories themselves, that'll be interesting, uh, what role do you hope they'll play in language revitalization among Penobscots?
1: Well, I hope that people will make plays out of them. We did once in Bangor with a a group. Uh, There was one time like we do sometimes people will put on a coming of age ceremony and I was thinking of uh, people was that have to memorize parts of a story you know if they could do that or become capable of doing that and I think if you become acquainted with them that you can tell them from memory you know I memorized some stories myself and uh, as a way to challenge yourself and also internalize the stories so I hope they are told again and again I started storytelling here and then COVID happened you know but Mm -hmm. my grandson was here and he acted like he didn't want to come in there with us you know but he did one day and he listened and it was painless you know but that uh, was a tradition we had uh, and I know that because Frank told me the people at Olemon walked to Lincoln Island on the ice in winter because they had to tell these stories even though they had told them the year before. They had to be told. So I've learned it's part of our cosmogony, like what fuels your universe. And uh, if you do that, it'll provide the continuation of your people. So I think... You know, there's a lot that has been taken from us that needs to come back. You know, when everybody else likes to go back to their values, right? Mm-hmm. And we're getting away from it since the land claims, uh, people have gotten away from it.
0: Hmm. Language revitalization is one of the major aims of Indigenous sovereignty activists, and something that a bunch of different Indigenous nations have been taking big strides towards. So I'm wondering in Maine for the Penobscot and maybe their neighbors, what role have state or national politics played in either helping or hurting this language revitalization? Have there been state or national political events or decisions that have made an impact?
1: Yes. Uh, we got the ANA grant. I think, I'm not sure the history of that, but... I've attended language conferences in Arizona, too. I think people are realizing that these languages are on the verge of extinction. There was something put out there and uh, certain programs were funded. I think that, you know, we benefit from that. And uh, I think it's great, you know, that we could do that. On the state level, I'm not sure. There's some main centennial Funding lately, and I've been telling stories at Bingor Public Library with money from that. But it's not language, you know, Penobscot language. I do it in English. I uh, heard on the federal level, there's going to be 20 million given a tribes' languages affected by COVID. Uh, we can't meet in person we have to do it on zoom and that's difficult for us like to do those lesson plans I told you you know we can't do actions to face to face and it's just hard
0: so what are your plans for the future of teaching and learning Penobscot in 2021 and beyond
1: well I'd like to train a few people right here at my home we could make fry bread we could do crafts, we could you know, do activities where you use your language in the activity. I think I've got four people now and uh, just make it an everyday part of life thing and uh, storytelling, we could do that. Uh, Gabe came up here one time and told a story in the language that was great, you know, in our storytelling that we had. And I would like to see us return to that, you know, as a group, Uh, we always hung with our elders and uh, visited them and talked with them. That's how we got the language.
0: I was meaning to ask on that note. I know that there's, there's a big increase in adult uh, language learners of Penobscot uh, on Indian Island. Have you seen growth or any notable events or success in that program?
1: Yeah, people use uh, leave taken, you know, uh, language, and they greet you now and tell you they love you. And my family does that. And it just, it feels good. You know, it's a, it's a start. And I think, uh, well, my cousin there, Gail Dana told me some time ago, send the birds out, you know, so I think that's what I want to do with this group is just have them go out and speak the language and use the language.
0: So would you say in the community that more people are speaking Penobscot now than did like 20 years ago?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, My grandson's friend came here and he spoke to me in Penobscot. Oh my gosh. My, my heart just soared that he was able to do that. And it, it just, oh, it makes me feel so good. Oh,
0: great. Well, uh, hopefully that continues.
1: Yes, uh, Nabizun has some language events and we've been up there with the other tribal members and done activities and so it's happening and uh, John was going to do something this spring and he wanted me to just sit in on it, you know, they they asked me to be present and uh, because they know I have the language and I like that.
0: Still They Remember Me, your translated collection, comes out this June with University of Massachusetts Press. Do you and your colleagues plan to do any uh, events in connection with this book when things hopefully open up this summer?
1: Oh, yeah. APS already wants us to do something. And there's a conference. A That's language... the
0: American Philosophical, Philosophical Society, Society in Philadelphia, Philadelphia,
1: Philadelphia, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And... Uh...
0: So when, uh, is this APS event going to be online? Yes. Okay. If you, I will post information about it uh, on the Twitter account of this podcast for anybody in the audience who wants to check that out. So there's going to be digital events through APS uh, where there may be, be any in-person, maybe like outdoor events this summer or fall, anywhere in Maine?
1: Well, we haven't planned any, but it's okay. an idea. I've had both of my shot. We'll right? see. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, I'm sure there'll be other events like that.
0: My last question, is there any work by somebody else, you know, that you would like to recommend to our listeners?
1: Yes, there's Leanne Francis' uh, book, "Kunu's News Basket. It's all in English and uh, Chamberlain has done a lot of work in language Frank Speck wrote about Penobscot spiritual life and Penobscot art. Frank G. Speck, he also wrote Medicinal Practices of the Northeast Algonquin. And there's other related language in Gordon Day, Henry Lorne Master, and Laurent, L A U R E N T, you know, on the Abenaki, but it's very similar to Penobscot language. Great. Okay. Hopefully I'll have some short stories coming up.
0: Oh, that would be great. Well, Carol Dana, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for stopping by on the show. We hope to speak with you again soon.
1: Thank you. That's our show.
0: So you don't miss out on all the latest excitement and for links to the books mentioned in this discussion, follow us on Twitter, at Mainly History. Next time, Andrew Worman joins us to talk about smallpox inoculation in early America, what the revolutionary generation thought about public health, and why whatever people claim they'd have to say today about COVID is wrong. Until then, may the only contagion you spread be your fandom of this show. Join us next time on Mainly History.